This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I'm really excited. I always say that, but I'm really excited about our guest today. I have with me Rachel Hart from Rachel Hart Coaching. And Rachel, I have just been kind of watching your work and the things you're doing online and it's amazing. So I thought oh, it would be so cool to get you on and really have you kind of tell your story and then you know we can get into all sorts of things. So welcome. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and, and share with your listeners. Oh, that's awesome. So why don't you just like walk us back like on a personal level? I always think that um, the best place to start is just kind of where it all sort of began for you, you know, even to your first drink, stuff like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I always talk about how I really discovered alcohol in college and really that first week in college for me. And so it was the first college party that I went to and I was so awkward and so insecure and so uncomfortable. And I remember feeling like, please, I would do anything to get out of this situation. Like, can I, can I just run home? And someone handed me a drink and all of a sudden it was like, oh, like this is how you deal with anxiety and insecurity. And this is how you feel confident and outgoing and are able to approach people. And so from that moment, I mean, I immediately thought like, oh, alcohol's fantastic. Where has it been this whole time? Now, that was, that was kind of my initial response to it. But of course, the more that I used it in life as a way to deal with that anxiety and to feel more confident and to cope with negative emotions, the more not only did I feel like I needed it, it felt like a crutch, but the more negative consequences were building up for me because I wasn't actually figuring out how to feel that way in my own. So I really pretty, pretty early on had a love-hate relationship with it that I felt like I just can't, like, this is how fun Rachel comes out. And this is how I get to access, you know, this silly, funny, confident version of myself and not be caught up with that little negative critic. And they was pointing out all my flaws and everything I'm doing wrong. I, I loved that part of it, but I hated the fact that I felt like I needed it. I hated the fact that it felt like I seemed like it had more desire than other people. I certainly didn't like the consequences of feeling like, you know, waking up the next day and aside from the hangover, just like, why did I do that? You know, trying to piece together the night before. So it was a love-hate relationship for me for a very long time that I felt incredibly stuck and incredibly frustrated about not knowing how to even go about changing it. So did you feel like um, when you looked at all the people kind of around you drinking, because it's really interesting. I mean, a lot of people come on and talk about, oh, it was in my teens or it was, um, you know, even earlier than that. Like I, I know somebody very closely who's an amazing man and he literally, literally, and I know this sounds hard to believe, but he quit drinking when he was 11 oh my because it was, he was given beer, like he was given juice. Yeah. And then finally at 11 years old, he had the presence of mind to be like, okay, I don't want my, to be like my dad, who is the one that's been giving me beer in this way. So since mm-hmm. he was 11, he stopped drinking. And um, so anyway, so there's all those sorts of stories, but it is unique, I think, for somebody not to really start drinking until college. And, and I think I'm very similar to you. Like, 
it wasn't even college. I drank occasionally in college, but it was really after college in the workforce. Yeah. So I was just curious um, when, you know, with all your peers and everybody around you, was it sort of like that you felt that you were drinking more or was the kind of internal love hate relationship coming more from just you not wanting to be doing what everybody else was doing? Yeah. I mean, I think certainly in, in my, you know, college years and in my early twenties, it felt like drinking was just like what you did. Right. And so like your social life and social activities were really built around getting drunk. <laughs> it wasn't even, it wasn't even built around drinking. It was built around getting drunk. So that was definitely something. I mean, I kept it very, very hidden. The fact that I had any stress and anxiety about it, right? I was so terrified of the fact that even acknowledging to myself, like, why do I feel like I need it? Right. Why do like that was terrifying for me. So I definitely it wasn't something that I wanted to share with anyone or I wanted to talk to people about. It was something that I very kind of suffered silently. But I, I mean, it's interesting that you that you talk about how, you know, a lot of people will have that kind of college experience because the more that the more that I talk to women and work with women, the more I discover that like it can happen at any time, really. You know, I mean, I, I work with so many moms who, you know, it's like all of a sudden they had a baby and it's like coping with the stress of having a baby. I was just talking to a woman who isn't just suddenly as of a couple months ago is an empty nester. Right. And all of a sudden she's like, I didn't think this was going to be an issue, but now as an empty nester, she's having it. So I think that's one of the big misconceptions is that like, oh, if alcohol is an issue, it will have always been an issue, but people's degree of struggle can really change over time. And we don't really acknowledge that widely in society. Yeah, for sure. So um, feeling like you had a love-hate relationship, you're, you're in college, then what what sort of went on? Was there a moment where, you know, it turned or it got different than it used to be? You never liked it, but then. Yeah. Well, I mean, I spent my twenties after I graduated flip-flopping between drinking and not drinking. So I would constantly have these moments of like, oh, why did I do that last night? I can't believe I did this again. I can't believe I drank too much again. And, and then I would like swear it off and it would last. I mean, the longest it lasted for me during that period was a year. The shortest was probably a weekend, right? I was constantly going back and forth because I had that love-hate relationship. And, it, you know, I didn't know really anything other than to do other than just like, well, I guess I'll just have to take it out. I guess I'll just say no. And so I would feel physically healthier, right? I wouldn't be waking up with hangovers, but I always felt deprived. I always felt like I was missing out. I always felt like something was wrong with me or that I had to hide or isolate. Um, and so I think what, what really finally changed for me was understanding that, that really really changing this habit and really changing my desire around alcohol actually didn't have that much to do with saying yes or saying no to a drink. It actually had a lot to do with understanding that drinking was helping me, right? It was helping me solve how I was feeling. It was helping me be um, more outgoing in social situations. It was helping me, you know, towards the end of my 20s and into my early 30s. It was helping me 
be deal with a lot of work stress and being traveling on the road all the time and feeling lonely. And until I learned how to solve these problems on my own, not drinking wasn't going to be the solution. And so I think that's really what the turning point was for me. That's really insightful. So it was, that's really insightful to have that happen while you were still drinking too, I feel like, because so often people are like, okay, not drinking is the issue. They make time to not drink. And then they realize, okay, well, actually I have to deal with all this fundamental like underbelly of, of yeah. stuff and emotions that I've been numbing alcohol with, but kind of to figure that out. So then in your journey, did you um, kind of start to mend those things and then your relationship with alcohol transformed or how, how did it kind of come about? Yeah. I mean, the reason why I think I had that insight was because I flip-flopped so much right? Because I kept going back to being like, I'm drinking, I'm not, I'm drinking, I'm not, right? And I can be like, I'm still not happy, <laughs> right? So like something, there has to be something deeper going on here. Um, so what I ended up eventually doing is I found the work of smart recovery. Oh, sorry. It has my internet connection. Is that okay? Yeah, no, I can hear you still. That's okay, great. Um, so I found the work of smart recovery, um, which, you know, brings cognitive behavioral therapy and techniques uh, to this issue. And I said, you know what, I am going to take a break, but I'm going to do it differently this time. I'm not going to just focus on not drinking. I'm going to really focus on how can I learn how to do the things that alcohol is helping me do, but creating all these consequences. So if I'm feeling really insecure in social situations, how can I transform that? If I'm feeling really lonely or I don't know how to deal with my stress, or I feel like I always need a reward at the end of the day, how am I going to learn how to do this on my own? So that changed my whole focus because instead of just walking around saying like, no, no, I'm not having a drink. I'm not having a drink. All of a sudden I put my brain on a mission to learn how to do all these things that I never learned how to do for myself. And that I think was what, where the transformation really came in. Oh, that's awesome. So was it for you sort of one moment or was it real gradual? I mean, honestly, I think it was more gradual. Um, and it's interesting because I have, I often remember feeling like maybe I haven't changed my drinking because I haven't hit rock bottom, right? Because we mm -hmm. have like this very strong belief that like the way to change is to hit rock bottom. And so I remember thinking like, well, maybe just things have to get worse, which is such a crazy idea when you think about it, right? This idea that like the only way I can change is for things to get really, really bad. Um, I think for me, it was more, it was this like gradual sense of like, whatever you're doing right now, Rachel, is not working. <laughs> right. And just keep getting to this place of feeling like I got to do something different. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, yeah, I guess what did, what did that end up looking like for you and how, I guess, how did that sort of impact things in your life? Yeah. I mean, the very first thing that it looked like for me was just being willing to walk into one of those smart recovery meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, that in and of itself, I mean, that probably took me like maybe six months from the time that I found out about it to where I finally said like, okay, I'm actually going to go in and I can like, I only have to go once, <laughs> right? I only have to go once. They don't make you wear a label, right? And it's about learning different skills and, and techniques. But just that I think was really, that was a, a big moment for me. But I mean, I think the thing that was so transformative is I 
you know, I talk about how even though my drinking was something that I recognized early on in college as creating problems for me, um, you know, now once I started understanding how drinking was helping me cope with negative emotions, I recognized that that habit, my brain learned how to do that well before college. When I was much younger, I was just doing it with food, right? So I talk about how I would come home from school. I would, you know, often come home. My older sister wasn't there. My parents weren't home. I was in an empty house. I was not a particularly happy kid. And I would just go straight to the kitchen and start making myself snacks, right? And like, how much can I eat before my parents come home, before my sister comes home? And once I started understanding what was behind the habit of drinking, I saw the parallels there. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I, well before I ever picked up my first drink, I was learning, I was teaching my brain that you deal with a negative emotion by putting something in your body, right? Mm -hmm. And so it actually was a pattern that I learned well before I ever showed up at college. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. That's fascinating. I recently had um, a woman, you might've heard of her. Her name is Isabel Foxen Duke. Have mm -hmm. you heard of her? Yep. Um, she was on my podcast and like she, her whole work is on just binge eating. And so we had an incredible conversation about just like the parallels and the differences. And it is really incredibly fascinating. Like that idea of controlling food or, or be, it's just, it's amazing. It's very different and it's very similar kind of all at once. So yeah. That's, and that's I mean, I think why it's so powerful is I, you know, I, I was introduced to this concept through Brene Brown's work of numbing, right? Like the things that we do to numb how we feel and you can use alcohol, you can use food, you can use spending money, you can use overwork, right? Like you can keep yourself so busy that you don't have a moment of free time to actually feel your feelings. And so I think that for me, it took away a ton of shame because all of a sudden I didn't, I wasn't treating alcohol as if it was this kind of unique issue unto itself, you know, that, that had to be treated separately. I saw it as part of a continuum of all the ways that we try to cope with how we feel. Um, and I also started to recognize that the real work for me was, was actually the work with my relationship with emotions, right? And the reason why that's so powerful, you know, I always say to people, anything you want to do in life, anything you dream of, you want to go after, the thing that's getting in the way is how you think you'll feel if you don't get it, right? It's the emotion of stepping outside of your comfort zone. It's, it's the emotion of feeling afraid or feeling insecure. And so learning how to deal with that around my drinking actually opened up this whole, this whole kind of newfound part of my life where I felt like, oh, I can actually also go after my dreams because now I'm not afraid to feel my feelings. I don't need to cover up every time I feel a negative emotion. And that's why I think this work is so powerful. Yeah, that's, that's so cool. And so what I really like about kind of your personal coaching approach is that like it isn't a one size fits all. Like you can come in and have different goals and lead people through different paths and really allow them to kind of choose what works best for them. Because I think that is one of the things, if we think, I mean, I love this analogy. I haven't actually used it in a while, but basically right now, um, I'd say prior, well, in general, I know this isn't true in all instances, but in general, we have had this perception. I certainly had this perception that if I was going to go to the doctor and talk to them about my drinking, I was going to be given a solution that was go to AA and 
get sober. Yep. And so I was liken that to, okay, I was going to walk into the doctor for a sore wrist and they were going to tell me to amputate at the shoulder. <laughs> and so I didn't go to the doctor yeah. because I was like, that way too extreme. That's way out there. There's no way that I feel like I want to, you know, lose this part of myself, lose this part of my life. And at the time, by the way, I did feel like drinking my friends around drinking and my colleagues around drinking and the whole act of drinking was very much a part of my life and yeah. very much like a part of who I was. It was part of my identity. You know, I identified with being the drinker, being the one with high tolerance, being the one who could carry the party, being the one who was always bringing the booze. Like that was part of, and so this idea of if I was going to go get help, I was going to be told to like exercise all of that. Um, little did I know that once I did open the door, like it really led me down to a path where I was like, okay, I see things so differently that I don't see this as part of myself anymore. I actually see it as something else and other that had crept in and kind of deceived me into thinking it was part of everything. But mm-hmm. once I got really back in touch with myself, I realized myself was myself way before booze came along and will be myself way after booze left my life. Um, but so I really, I really appreciate that, that idea of it isn't, isn't one size fits all because you're basically saying, okay, come to me, tell me about your sore wrist and you know, we're going to diagnose it. Maybe you need a cast, maybe you need a brace, maybe you do need amputation at the shoulder, but we're going to actually talk it through. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I think that it, one of the, the things that I think holds so many people back is that there is this sense of like, there is only one solution. And the only solution, if you have any degree of struggle is to declare that you're an alcoholic and wear that label for the rest of your life and go to meetings for the rest of your life. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, I always say like there are 7 billion people on this planet. It can't just be that there is one solution that works for everyone. And I, I do agree this idea of, yes, you know, (laughs) it's funny. I often say to people, you know, if you didn't eat grapes, like if you went to a party and you're like, sorry, no grapes, right? Would it be this like huge thing? We'd be like, oh my God, what are people going to think that I don't eat grapes, right? No, but when we, but people, when they think about alcohol and especially, you know, I had this as well. It was like the idea of saying that I didn't drink was just horrifying to me mm-hmm. because it was so wrapped up in who I thought I was and the story of myself and my identity. Um, and so I do think it is incredibly intimidating for people, not only to say like, look, the only solution is to never drink again, but also it doesn't allow for you to be your own authority, right? Like that's what I want people to uncover for themselves. Like let you be your own authority about what works for you. And that may be drinking less. That may be not having it be a nightly habit. That may be learning how not to need it in social situations. But, you know, if the focus is just on just say no, just don't ever drink again, I think that you can get into a situation where, okay, you, you say no. Right. And I, I see this with happening with people that I work with. They'll say like, Oh, well, I, like I haven't had a drink in, in six months or I haven't had a drink in a year, but I'm still unhappy. Oh, and PS I've like started eating a ton or PS, <laughs> you know, I have like a huge credit card bill or I can't stop working right? Like I'm just keeping myself busy all the time. So it doesn't, it doesn't get at like the real root cause of, or the real root issue of what's going on. Yeah. It's so important. So, so cool and so powerful. So how did, how did it go from um, being kind of a personal transformation into being something that you're now doing professionally? Um, I think for me, 
there was, so there was a huge light bulb moment when I recognized how drinking was actually a way to deal with negative emotions that applied in so many different areas, right? And I could see the patterns that I had previously had with eating in my life. So there was that piece. But then I also realized like, why do we, like, why are there not that many options out there? Why is it that, you know, the predominant narrative is just like, it's just AA, go to AA, right? Like AA is the solution. Because I felt like I was stuck in, I was stuck for so long feeling like I didn't have any options simply because that was the predominant narrative. And for me, I, I guess I just felt like this is so transformative and it changes everything, not just your drinking, right? It, it changed everything in my life, my perception of myself, my ability to deal with negative emotions, my willingness to take risks, my willingness to step outside of my comfort zone. I mean, it really did change everything for me. And I just, I just had this moment where I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> people, like people need to know about this. And I, I mean, I always think... I suffered for so long feeling like there were no options for me. There was nothing that I connected with. There was nothing that I um, felt like resonated with my particular situation. Uh, and so just wanting to share that and wanting to, you know, help, help people get unstuck, really. I think that's what happened for me. Oh, that's so cool. So where can people find you? So just go to rachelhart.com. That's my website. And you can uh, learn. I have a podcast. I have a book. Um, I have different coaching programs, but that is the place to find out all the information about me. Oh, that's so awesome. And I always ask this question sort of at the end is like, what is the thing that you would go back and sort of tell yourself the self that was struggling, the self that was, um, you know, having the massive love hate relationship with alcohol about kind of what life is like now? I think that I would tell her to just start practicing being curious. So one of the things that I was so steeped in shame, there was so much shame, so much self-loathing, so much judgment, because I really believed that, that drinking more than I wanted and needing a drink in, to cope with how I was feeling or deal in certain situations, I really kind of felt like it was a sign that something was truly broken inside of me and I had some sort of character defect. And really, I always tell people the way to get out of shame is to be curious, right? It's not mm -hmm. self-love. So if you're fully in a shame spiral, self-love is way too big of a jump. But if you can just be curious, right? Like, why did I choose to drink? Why did I say yes? Why has it become a habit? If you can just be curious to me, that, that would have been a lesson that I would have wanted a lot earlier because I was so steeped in all the judgment of myself. Oh, that's so, that's so cool. And you're absolutely right. Like with anything, when you're way down here, jumping way up, it just doesn't work. And we it end up work. Yeah. really worse because we can't get there. It should yeah. just be so easy. Um, I've been talking a lot recently about this idea of, uh, you know, positive mantras, which, you know, obviously are awesome and obviously have their place. But in my experience, I really was like, okay, if that's all it takes, I'm going to like make these stickies and I'm going to put them on my thing or write something on my mirror and really start telling myself things. So like an example, you know, if I was going to tell myself like I'm, successful, but I didn't believe that I was successful at all really internally, it actually really made things worse because yeah. it created all this 
internal struggle and cognitive dissonance. And I was like, but I couldn't realize that at the time. I just thought positive mantras were just total crap because they didn't work for me. They just pissed me off. Like if I'm being really honest about it. And yep. so, but now in hindsight, you know, I've, I've, have, I forget who I learned it from. I think it was probably a book by Dr. Caroline Leaf where um, she really made the connection that like, look, if you don't actually believe what you're telling yourself, so you can't move from shame, hating yourself to I love myself just mentally um, because you have to believe it. So, you know, if I would have posted something like, okay, I'm working on becoming successful or, you know, just like you said, like I'm starting to question this, like I'm undoing the knot, like I'm taking yeah. the baby step then that's something you can really get behind without actually creating what she calls toxic chaos in the brain because all the neurochemicals that get released when you end up mentally fighting with yourself, which yeah. is, by the way, what we've been the whole time. That's the definition of a love-hate relationship, right? So it's really fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. That was profound. I think that that piece is so incredibly important because people, right? Like so many people be like, I tried the positive thinking thing and it just made me feel worse. And it's like, yeah, because your brain is like, you're saying like, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I love myself. And your brain's like, that's eh, kind of BS. Right. Yeah. And then it's like, oh, I'm doing that wrong too. So it really is figuring out those baby steps. I always say with people around their desire, when they're like, there's no way I can ever change my desire not to drink or, or my desire to drink. I always say like, is it possible there are times during the day where you don't desire a drink? And Ooh. like that, like just opening the door a little bit to be like, oh yeah, I guess I don't always desire it, right? To see like, yeah, there is a little space, but those baby steps I think are really the path to make big transformation. That's so interesting. I love that example. I mean, I definitely, you know, in the same vein would talk to people about like, look, there's 24 hours of the day. How many of those hours are you tipsy or drunk? And for most people who are, I mean, because we're not, you know, I think both of our work is not necessarily, we're not, you know, in the space of like rehab or where you are drinking from morning to night and you are in a very tough medical place, but we're much more in the space of um, moms who are just having, you know, one or two more glasses of wine than they want to every night yeah. or dads who are just like overdoing it every time that, you know, Sunday football's on or whatever the case is. So you say, okay, well, you think that this is this all-consuming thing because you think about it all the time, always on your mind. But in reality, the amount of hours you're actually spending in that like pleasurable tipsy space are, are really a small percentage of your overall day. And then that really reframes it for people. They're like, huh, that, that's interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, or even, I mean, even to consider, you know, if you're really practicing mindfulness around consumption and drinking, right? Like how often, and this is like a fascinating exercise I have a lot of clients do, like how often are you actually truly enjoying it? Right. And, and how often are you like, I don't even really like this. Like this isn't even, it's like gone past the point. I've definitely passed the point of enjoying it. Right. And then you just start to see like, okay, so then is it really all about enjoyment? So just like having that kind of awareness, I think is such a powerful way to intervene when your brain's just like, I just love alcohol, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, which is what I told myself for a really long time too. Like, it's just like amazing and, it, and I love it. And I'll like never be able to change my desire and I will always feel like I'm missing out. And it's so, it's still like continues to blow my mind that I'm like, huh, no, not true. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. And I think too, once you become, you almost go through this phase where you're 
not really thinking about it all that much. Mm -hmm. you're, you're convinced you love it because you're doing it all the time. So you must yeah. love it, right? But, but it's, you're not giving a lot of thought. And then you move into this phase of actually trying to change something and do something. And then that makes it more important, by the way, because all of a sudden it's giving even more thought and more times and more air in your mind. And you've created this forbidden fruit syndrome, which as humans, we always want to grab onto the things that are being taken from us. And then, so now we're even more convinced that we love it. Whereas before we actually didn't give it all that much thought, right? And it's like just this interesting thing to move through and past that into the place where you're like, okay, let's look at this um, kind of with a real like emotions aside, you know? And it's interesting when you do that, if you look at it with the emotions aside, getting curious, curiosity by definition really creates a gap between your emotional reaction and, yep. and your response. And so if you can put that gap between your emotions and, and your response and what's happening and get curious, the emotions actually um, very curiously, in fact, follow along with it. Yeah. It's really, I mean, I always say, and then like the ultimate place where you get is when you free up all this mental energy, right? Like that's where I want people to get where you're not all of a sudden like worrying about your drinking or thinking about your drinking or recovering about your drinking or what does it, my drinking mean about me? If you think about all that mental energy, like what do you want to devote that to, right? Like if we can free that up, you create all this space and all this place for you to say like, yeah, what do I want to use the space in my brain to do or create or become? And that's to me what, where it really gets very exciting. And then plus when you recognize you don't have to always run away from negative emotions, you don't have to always be avoiding them. That is what opens up so much possibility. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. It's been just an absolute pleasure to have you on. And I feel like you have so much great insight that so many people are going to benefit from. And thank you for sharing your own story as well. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been Annie Grace with This Naked Mind Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You can learn more at thisnakedmind.com. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe as it really helps us spread the word.